Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, L.A. Opera's Richard Seaver music director, James Conlin, continues to explore Mozart's masterwork, The Marriage of Figaro, and the original revolutionary play by Pierre-Augustin Beaumarchais upon which it was based. Though all performances of L.A. Opera's planned production of The Marriage of Figaro, originally scheduled for June 6th through 28th, have necessarily been canceled due to restrictions related to the novel coronavirus, we hope you will still enjoy going inside the work with our conductor, hearing Maestro Conlon's thoughts and insights into this sparkling, and one might even say incendiary opera. This is James Conlon. When I last left you, we had listened to Mozart's Figaro deliver his jealous tirade. Now I want to read to you Beaumarchais' Figaro, the original monologue from the fifth act of the play. Bear in mind that it was incendiary in France, and would have been so also in Vienna if Mozart and da Ponte had allowed it to stand. Though it issues from the mouth of Figaro, it is really Beaumarchais' own mini-autobiography, a long complaint of all the trials and tribulations he experienced. I will read it in a translation by John Wood. I have omitted several short passages which in today's world might be considered offensive. If you want to read them, I certainly invite you to do so. Figaro starts by recalling the moment in the previous act in which, during the wedding ceremony, Susanna discreetly passed a note to the Count. After stubbornly refusing when I urged her to it in the presence of her mistress, at the very moment of her plighting her words to me, in the very midst of the ceremony, and he smiled when he read it, the scoundrel of a count, and I standing by like a blockhead. No, my lord count, you shan't have her, you shall not have her, because you are a great nobleman, you think you are a great genius. Nobility, fortune, rank, position, how proud they make a man feel. What have you done to deserve such advantages? Put yourself to the trouble of being born? Nothing more. For the rest, a very ordinary man. Whereas I, lost among the obscure crowd, have had to deploy more knowledge, more calculation and skill, merely to survive, than has sufficed to rule all the provinces of Spain for a century. Yet you would measure yourself against me. The night's as dark as the very devil, and here I am, plying the stupid trade of a husband, though I'm still only half married. Could anything be stranger than a fate like mine? Son of God knows whom. Stolen by bandits, brought up to their way of life, I became disgusted with it, and I yearned for an honest profession, only to find myself repulsed everywhere. I study chemistry, pharmacy, surgery, and all the prestige of a great nobleman can barely secure me the handling of a horse doctor's probe. Weary of making sick animals worse, and determined to do something different, I throw myself headlong into the theater. Alas, I might as well have put a stone around my neck. Unable to break my spirit, they decided to take it out of my body. 
My cheeks grew furrowed. My time was out. I saw in the distance the approach of the sergeant. His quill stuck into his wig. Trembling, I summoned up all my resources. Economic matters were under discussion. Since one can talk about things even though one doesn't possess them, and though, in fact, I had the penny, I wrote a treatise on the theory of value and its relation to the net product of national wealth, whereupon I found myself looking from the depths of a hired carriage at the drawbridge of a castle, lowered from my reception, and abandoned all hope of liberty. How I would like to have hold of one of those jacks in office, so indifferent to the evils that they cause, when disaster had extinguished his pride. I tell him that stupidities that appear in print acquire importance only in so far as their circulation is restricted, that unless there is liberty to criticize, praise has no value, and that only trivial minds are apprehensive of trivial scribbling. Tiring of housing an obscure pensioner, they put me in the street eventually, and since a man must eat even though he isn't in jail, I sharpen my quill again, inquire how things are going, and am told that during my economic retreat there had been established in Madrid a system of free sale of commodities, which extended even to the products of the press, and that, provided I made no reference in my articles to the authorities, or to religion, or to politics, or to morals, or to high officials, or to influential organizations, or the opera, or to any theatrical productions, or to anybody of any standing whatsoever, I could freely print anything I liked, subject, of course, to the approval of two or three censors. In order to profit from this very acceptable freedom, I announce a new periodical which, not wishing to tread on anyone else's toes, I call the Good-for-Nothing Journal. A thousand miserable scribblers are immediately up in arms against me. My paper is suppressed, and there I am, out of work again. I was on the point of giving up in despair when it occurred to someone to offer me a job. Unfortunately, I had some qualifications for it. It needed a knowledge of figures, but it was a dancer who got it. Nothing was left to me but stealing, so I set up as a banker at Faro. Now notice what happens. I dine out in style, and so-called fashionable people throw open their houses to me, keeping three-quarters of the profits for themselves. I could well have restored my fortunes. I even began to understand that in making money, savoir-faire is more important than true knowledge. But since everybody was involved in some form of swindle, and at the same time demanding honesty from me, I inevitably went under again. This time I renounced the world, and twenty fathoms of water might have divided me from it, when a benevolent providence recalled me to my original estate. I picked up my bundle and my leather strop, and, leaving illusions to the fools who can live by them, and my pride in the middle of the road as too heavy a burden for a pedestrian, I set out with my razor from town to town, and lived henceforth carefree. A great nobleman comes to Seville, and he recognizes me. I get him safely married, and, as a reward for my trouble in helping him to a wife, he now wants to intercept mine. Intrigue, plots, stormy interludes. I'm on the point of falling into an abyss and marrying my own mother when, lo and behold, my parents turn up one after the other debate and discussion. It's you. It's him. It's me. It's you. No. It isn't any of us. No. Who is it, then? Fantastic series of events. Why should they happen to me? 
why these things and not others? Who made me responsible, obliged to follow a road I set out on, all unknowing, and one I shall come to the end of, willy-nilly? I have strewn it with such flowers as my high spirits have permitted. I say my high spirits, without knowing whether they are any more mine than the rest, or who is this me that I am worrying about, a formless aggregation of unidentified parts, than a puny stupid being, a frisky little animal, a young man ardent in the pursuits of pleasure, with every taste for enjoyment, plying all sorts of trades in order to live. Now master, now servant, as fortune pleases, ambitious from vanity, industrious from necessity, but lazy from inclination. Orator in emergency, poet for relaxation, musician when occasion demands, in love by mad fits and starts. I've seen everything, done everything, been everything. At last all illusions destroyed, disabused, all too much disabused. Oh, Suzanne, what torture you put upon me. I hear someone coming. This is the moment of decision. It is now time for Susanna's only real aria. She has been on stage more than anyone else, always interacting, managing, aiding, and abetting, when not maneuvering around the Count and his cohorts. Now she is alone, or almost. Figaro is lurking in the shadows. Mozart has created this aria. There is no parallel in the play. He seems to have a higher purpose in mind than just recounting the narrative, and that is, in my opinion, to give Susanna, the servant, a moment of sublimity that defies and surpasses the expectations of her audience. We now will have had four soliloquies, fully revealing and significant. The juxtaposition of Figaro's jealous outburst with Susanna's deeply poignant and spiritual expressivity mirrors the Act Three proximity of the Count's angry invective and the Countess's touching and uplifting determination. The battle of the sexes is shown in full operation for both aristocracy and servant. The men fulminate, and the women demonstrate their empathic humanity. Susanna is ostensibly addressing this tender love song to the Count in order to make Figaro jealous. But on a higher plane... Through the uplifting power of music, she expresses her love for Figaro and transports us all into the realm of profound love. Through the spoken word alone, this dichotomy would be difficult to realize on stage, but thanks to the extraordinary capacity of music to express what often cannot be put into words, Mozart and Susanna reach together for the sublime. The aristocratic couple's arias are grander, with three parts and more lavish orchestration. The servant couple's arias are in one single movement with an introductory orchestral recitative. Susanna sings in F major in 6-8 meter. Both elements are often associated with pastoral settings, lovers blissfully united in an idealized vision of country life. But as for its spiritual content, it evokes the Incarnatus Est from the Credo of the C minor Mass. F major, 6-8, with prominence given to three solo woodwind instruments. Both arias challenge the soprano's ability to communicate deep feeling, sing with purity of tone, and transport the listener to the still point of the turning world. When well sung, 
Time should stop, as it does here. I have surveyed all of the arias of the opera, with one exception, which deserves its special moment. I take a short detour backwards to the beginning of Act Four in order to introduce a subset of the aria, the arietta, or small aria. At that point, we discovered Barbarina, daughter of Antonio the gardener, cousin of Susanna, and, momentarily at least, a sweetheart of Cherubino. Da Ponte combined two different scenes to provide Barbarino with this marvelous miniature. She has lost the pin, lo perduta, that she was supposed to deliver to the Count. She fears for herself, and no doubt feels she has failed in her mission that would have demonstrated that she too could participate in the games and intrigues of the adults. It is touching to note that the singer who portrayed Barbarina in the premiere was twelve years old. This Arietta, like Susanna's love song, is also in 6-8, but the key is now F minor, not major. Relatively few pieces are written in F minor by Mozart's generation. 
There was only a fleeting reference to it in Act I, where Susanna sang a similar motive when she too felt lost, son perduta, momentarily cornered by the Count and Basilio. Barbarina's arietta lasts only slightly more than a minute, but is nonetheless one of the most exquisitely beautiful moments in the opera. Mozart demonstrates that the emotions of young people, rather than trivial, are as powerful as those of their elders. Part of Mozart's genius resided in his ability to portray human beings with all their complexity and imperfection, to accept them as they are, and to bind them to us in a harmonious cosmos. He is able to make us feel that the universe is in order, despite the possibility, perhaps probability, that he and da Ponte subtly raise, that their characters, their behavior, and their circumstances may not change much in the future they likely will continue to live, love, and operate in the same manner that they have demonstrated in the operas. As he did in Act Two, Mozart will end with an extended ensemble of interconnected movements, a tour de force of complex music with a dizzying network of disguises, mistaken identities, and multi-layered intrigue, all in the pursuit of, well, many things. Cherubino is out on the prowl, he was looking for Barbarina, but gets distracted when he sees Susanna, or so he thinks. He begins to woo her. The Countess, in her disguise, reacts with bewilderment. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
The Count, ardent and eager, arrives. He sees Carabino paying court to Susanna, or so he thinks. The Count, now agitated, wants to see what is going on. Figaro, jealous and unnerved, also wants to see what is going on. The Count swings at Carabino, but, in the dark, strikes Figaro instead. That clears the air for the Count to start wooing Susanna, so he thinks, in earnest. He offers promises and passion, dowry and a diamond. Figaro and Susanna observe from their different perspectives. Thank you. 
faccio bene Entri a mia bella fede e abbiamoci a città Vai! Vai! Sì, The comedy resides in the fact that none of the men, including Cherubino, know what is going on. Eventually, Susanna, the countess, that is, slips away into the pavilion, and the count follows. The music briefly abandons its rhythmic impetus to pass into a suspended sense of timelessness, subtly evoking a dark eroticism, as Figaro believes that the dreaded outcome of the count's wooing is being realized. Figaro, in a moment of reflection, identifies himself as a participant in a mythic drama, playing the role of Vulcan. The real Susanna brings him back to earth, eventually letting fall her disguise as the Countess, and gives him a loving pummeling in payment for his jealousy. Come on, 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 come on,
Figaro and Susanna are tenderly reconciled in another pastoral 6-8 movement. When the Count appears looking for Susanna, he believes that he sees his wife with Figaro and with righteous and hypocritical indignation prepares to mete out a just punishment. He is thoroughly benighted and has almost hit bottom in a moral freefall, which he doesn't yet realize. He calls everyone together to expose the Countess and Figaro. The more public, the better, only to realize that he has fallen into an enormous and very overt trap when the real Countess reveals herself. Son 
The music mutates in an instant. The Count, humiliated, begs the Countess for pardon. Contessa perdona. In forgiving him, the Countess's spirituality touches on the divine. In a sublime moment, all motion halts, and the outflowing of compassion, humanity, and love is amongst the greatest transformative passages in all of Mozart's output. Three bars of music hover between hell and heaven, alienation and redemption, isolation and transcendence. And then the music explodes in a wild, life-affirming coda, bookending the energy of the overture. Man and woman, master and servant, all euphorically celebrating the culmination of the folle journée. 
All of this reflects the culture of the Droit du Seigneur, around which the crazy day swirls. The marriage of Figaro conjures up the world of pre-revolutionary France. The aristocratic men, vain, capricious, and jealous of their prerogatives, rule their political and domestic domains. But the women, more evolved, bring sense and humanity into that world. The Ancien Régime still reigned in 1786, when Mozart introduced Figaro to Vienna. It was to unravel in France three years later, and gradually, over the next century, in the rest of the Western world. Next time, we will look into the third play of the Figaro trilogy, La Mère Coupable, The Guilty Mother, and its surprising look at our favorite characters a generation later. No composer has translated this into an opera that has entered the repertory, but one work which used it as a starting point has made its mark. We will look at The Ghost of Versailles by John Corigliano, and I will also finally tell the story, long promised, of Beaumarchais's role in the American Revolution. See you then. I'm James Conlon. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.